Radio Drome. Another wonderful episode of Radio Drome. Ah, I'm lying. It's not going to be a wonderful one. It never is. It's never a wonderful episode. But you know what is wonderful? Going to adamandeve.com and using the promo code DROME. And if you do that, you get 50% off of a single item. You get three free DVDs. You get a free mystery gift, and you get free shipping in the United States, all for going to adamandeve.com and using the promo code DROME. And you can probably buy something that will pleasure you a lot longer than listening to this show will. So, Fred, am I self-deprecating enough in this open? I think so. Because, yeah, Brad and Brian, I honestly, I don't know where the hell they are right now. So, my friend, Fred Fritz, is happy to be a last-minute addition. He wants me to point that out, <laughs> that he's a last-minute addition. Say hello, Fred. Hello, Fred. I knew that was coming. Well, of course. I mean, if we're going for self-deprecation, we might as well also go for the obvious humor, too. That's true. Tonight, we are going to do a director filmography. Now, not an entire filmography, because this director has directed way too many things. And that's not even counting all the titles he's written, all the movies he's produced, done sound department on. One of the most prolific directors in Hollywood history. And yet his tone is all over the place. He does movies of all genres. He, 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 has, he has a career that you almost can't even really pull together. And you know who I'm talking about, Fred? Alan Smithy. Yeah. The great Alan Smithy. Now, Alan Smithy is one of those names that everybody's heard of, but there was the longest time, Fred, even in, even in the, you know, mainstream hardcore movie viewers, that for a while people didn't know Alan Smithy was the pseudonym you used when a movie has been taken away from you. I'm going to ask you, what's the first time you noticed an Alan Smithy credit on a film or a TV show or something like that where you noticed, hey, I've seen a movie by this guy? To be fair and to be completely honest with this, I actually, it was an article I read in Premier Magazine. I actually heard about the Alan Smithy phenomenon before I ever realized it was being used repeatedly. Ah, okay. So in my in my particular case, uh, I didn't see, but I do recall after reading the article, I started actually seeing the the name. You know, that was it's one of those things like you never noticed it, and then you hear about it, and you not you notice it everywhere. And I think the first movie I ever saw where I noticed it was uh, Let's Get Harry. Well, Let's Get Harry was kind of playing off of that uh, Uncommon Valor was uh, very popular. Ah, and, okay. Uh, it was it was it was kind of a takeoff on that, so it wasn't a big movie at all. <laughs> um, but uh, that was the first time I recall having ever seen it. Well, let, let's go into a little bit of history of Alan Smithy, so people understand why people, why directors, writers, and whatnot use this pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Alan Smithy basically is. If you feel that the film has been taken away from you, either by the producers, by maybe an overwrought actor, maybe in editing, the studio just took it away later on, you feel it's no longer the film that you directed, then you're then you were able to put a pseudonym on it. And they were they wanted to choose a pseudonym that sounded real because the the audience was never supposed to know that this was existing. Someone that sounded like they could be a real person, but 
was unlikely to ever actually encounter a person that had that name. And the first film that ever did this was 1969's Death of a Gunfighter. Now, there are other films that prior to this that have an Alan Smithy credit, but those were done after 1969 that that credit was added. Death of a Gunfighter was the first real Alan Smithy movie. And do you remember reading the reviews? Because this was a big deal when, when the whole Alan Smithy thing broke in the early 90s, probably around the time that Premier Magazine article, Fred. People, since they didn't know Alan Smithy was a fake person, the reviews for Death of a Gunfighter were touting how great the direction was, and this Alan guy is really hitting it out of the park for his first movie. <laughs> and that just makes it even funnier in retrospect, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's one of those great little ironies. So I, I just find that really funny. But basically what it means is the movie has been taken away from you, and now sometimes you're not able to do that. You have to go through the Director's Guild, and they decide whether the movie is substantially different from the movie you were directing. So there are a lot of films where people wanted to have their names taken off and couldn't. Because right. the Director's Guild said, no, you got it. This, is, this is only 30% different than the cut you turned in. It's still your movie. you got to take credit for it. Of course, there's just always that whole thing about, you know, maybe it's, it's ultimately not that bad of a film. And... Uh... Uh, I, I think that sometimes the whole Alan Smithy thing, it's one of those issues I think it kind of causes more problems sometimes than it solves. And the reason they wanted it kept secret for so long was if you knew that the director took his name off the film, that meant a tumultuous production. That meant the public is already going to be swayed against your movie, correct? Yeah. So that's why they wanted this kept secret. I actually don't remember what the first movie that really broke it wide that, that people started talking about and going, this is a fake name and this is a pseudonym. I don't remember what the first one that broke that into the mainstream of people knowing who Alan Smithy was. But I, I'm going to say it was late 80s, early 90s, because that's when I started seeing that talked about on you know Entertainment Tonight and places like that. Well, I can say, at least on this part, where I started noticing at least friends around me. You know, like you're, Much like yourself, I've always been surrounded by people who love movies. And uh, the, the people that would notice it or discuss it, the first time I ever noticed that it was something pretty well known was actually the television version of Dune, which was greatly altered from the theatrical print that David Lynch had submitted. And uh, the television version was an Alan Smithy. People I knew was actually telling me, ah, did you see the TV? It was an Alan Smithy. You know, so people were at least in the know at that point. I don't My remember, friends. The TV version, yeah, that would have been about mid-80s, right? Because if the movie was 84, it probably wouldn't hit TV till probably 86. I'm, I'm going to say it was actually closer to 90. Uh, and, you know, that was they, they had to put that together. So, I, yeah, I'm going to say it was closer to probably 90 because I lived in Florida, I know, when it showed at least once, and that was 90, 1990. Okay, so, yeah, it would be right around the same time frame that I'm talking about where this was broken to the, the main public. Yeah, I would say so. I would actually say that you're right. I think you've got the time period pretty well locked down when it started to get known. And then there are other ones where people, like I pointed out before, wanted to take their names off of a film. And it was just for, especially in the weird part of like Humanoids from the Deep, it was because of footage that was added by another director, not footage that was taken away. Mm -hmm. And I find that 
to be the funniest because Humanoids from the Deep is a very sexploitation movie about monsters from the deep that are raping and impregnating women on beaches. Not a whole lot of plot there. And it was directed by a woman. Well, she tried to direct it somewhat tastefully, as tastefully as that kind of subject matter can be directed. Okay, fair enough. Roger Corman thought there wasn't enough sex and there wasn't enough raping. So he asked her to put some more in. She said no, so he went and did it himself. And she tried to have her name removed from the movie because all this, the blatant rape scenes and all the boobs, those were not in her cut. And the Director's Guild said, nah, it's still pretty much your movie. Before this, and this is very telling, when you look at the Alan Smithy filmography, there's not a whole lot of recognizable titles there. I mean, I'm looking through this and I'm going, don't know that movie, don't know that movie, don't know that movie, don't even know that TV series, and so forth. Mm -hmm. That's kind of telling right there, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I think you nail it right there. That When we were discussing this briefly beforehand, I looked over the list. I was shocked to see one title that sort of exploded out at me. And that's because of how bad everything else is. Just yeah. Only one title just jumped right out at me because everything else is like... Uh, we were joking about... Uh, what was the one? The Barking Dog. Yes, The know? Barking Dog, 1978, or, <laughs> or 1980s Gypsy Angels, or the 1970 TV movie The Challenge. Come on, people, you know these, don't you? The TV movie City and Fear, the TV movie Fun and Games. You know what? There's a lot of TV movies on here now that I just look at that. I didn't mm -hmm. put that together before. What was it about 70s and 80s TV movies that no one wanted to take credit for? <laughs> I just noticed that. I didn't even see that before. <laughs> yeah, there was probably a lot of, I'll bet you given the 70s, there was probably a lot of stock footage disputes <laughs> in those. There, there might have been, because continuity-wise, going through, the very first one that I even recognize, and, and this does kind of throw me a little bit being in the pilot, is the 1985 pilot for MacGyver is an Alan Smithy. Yeah, I heard about that one, too. So, I mean, the pilot episode, what a way to kick off your TV series, right? Yeah. The director doesn't even want to take credit for this train wreck. Yeah, he thought it was going to... I, I, I've heard this posthumously, so I didn't know an Alan Smithy aspect of this. But I've heard this posthumously about how the director was... He thought for sure this was going to be this huge bomb and it would never be seen again. So he just took the paycheck, did it, did, half-assed it, and then... they picked, And then they went, they picked it up? <laughs> and then... <laughs> now it's known forever. And I don't know if it's the same director, but another first season episode called The Heist was also directed by Alan Smithy. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big MacGyver fan, so I don't know where The Heist falls into the continuity of the series. Maybe that's the second episode. You know, maybe yeah, I've never the same seen guy. it, so I can't speak on MacGyver even slightly. Uh, I think I've seen one episode in my entire life. Uh, but I was telling you, I was shocked uh, back in 2002. I didn't know this, and I've watched this whole series twice. There was an episode of a Nero Wolf mystery, uh, the 2002 version produced by Timothy Hutton, starring uh, Timothy Hutton and Maury Chainman, uh, called Mother Hunt. It's a two-parter. So we're talking a pretty big episode here. You know, A lot of money was spent. Without a doubt. And uh, this was an expensive series to begin with. It's why it eventually was canceled. It wasn't because it was unpopular. A&E couldn't afford it any longer. This was actually directed by a guy named Charles B. Wessler. I looked him up. It's his only title as a director. He was mainly a producer. That's so. mainly that's telling right there, too. Yeah, yeah. So well, it, I guess and, it's just one of those things that happens. Well, and see, what something you just pointed out is another aspect of the Alan Smithy credit. 
you're only allowed to take the Alan Smithy credit if you agree not to badmouth the production publicly and never talk about why you took your name off of the film. So it could have been maybe the maybe the guy was blabbing because oh, the, maybe the reason we haven't seen a lot of these movies and they've been lost to time is part of that, that whoever the real director was, and, and in some cases, nobody, I mean, I cannot find any documentation over who the real director of, like, The Barking Dog is. Mm-hmm. You know, in a lot of these, you know who the real director is. You know, you can find a magazine that was talking about it during production or something. In some of these, it's really a mystery of, we don't know who directed this. Maybe the reason you didn't know about that Nero Wolf was the fact that he had to not talk about it to use the pseudonym. I don't know if the story is true or not, but I, 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 I remember reading in a film book once that the Alan Smithy uh, pseudonym was not adopted, actually, as a, oh boy, I don't want my name associated with this piece of crap. But that was actually adopted to originally be when there was ever a conflict for a certain director directing a project that perhaps they shouldn't have been. It could have been a studio conflict. It could have been even, uh, well, going off, off guild, off guild, maybe even a McCarthy kind of thing with a blacklisting, you know, but uh, I've heard that that's what it actually was originally for. It was just supposed to be to protect the director and uh, that makes sense if you think about it it really does but in a lot of cases in the at least in the ones where the the true story of why the alan smithy credit is on a film it's usually due to studio interference and the director going no you know what you guys i'm sick of this you guys make your damn cut of the movie and i won't i'm not having my name on this piece of crap mm-hmm. that's usually what it comes down to is well, studio I, I interference. With that. i'm just saying but you know if you go back to like this is like the 1950s and while, of course, we know through the stories of Orson Welles, for instance, or any of them, this existed, but a lot of directors just sort of took it back then. I mean, I, like, I'm looking at the list right here, and I noticed there's only a handful of titles up until you hit about the 80s, and that's when it just, like, launches. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you said already, I mean, it just launches. So it, it sort of does make sense, if you think about it, um, that it would become that way. And it's not always a bad thing, because going chronologically, the next thing we've got here is the Alan Smithy directing credit on the 1985 Twilight Zone episode, Paladin of the Lost Hour. Mm-hmm. Now, in that, the director being fired halfway through production saved the episode. Harlan Ellison talks openly about it. He wrote the episode, and he was a producer on the series. And he, he says that he, he refuses to name the director because he says the guy's a hack and he doesn't deserve any lip service from Ellison talking about it. it. It's a story of two characters in the, in the Paladin of the Lost Hour story, okay? Played by, played by Danny Kay in what turned out to be his final role and Glenn Turman. The director was letting Danny Kay basically run the production, you know, because Danny Kay is a huge name, even by mm-hmm. 1985 standards. He said, Ellison says Danny Kay was being ungodly selfish. That whenever it was a tight shot or a, a single shot of just Danny, he'd give a great performance. But then whenever it was a two shot, he'd half-ass his his delivery, forcing them in editing to only use the shots where it's just him and cutting out Glenn Turman. So he said he was being an ungodly selfish actor that basically he wanted everyone to know, I am the star of this episode, not this Turman guy no one's ever heard of. The director just kept letting Danny Kay get away with it. Ellison, obviously loving this story, 
didn't want to see it wrecked by having the editing forced to use just a Danny Kay takes. So he stood up to Danny Kay, and the director backed Danny. Ellison, being a producer, fired the director and finished the episode himself. So in that case, and the director said, I didn't even finish it, I don't want my name on it. In that case, it saved the episode, because it is a brilliant 30 minutes. It is a brilliant episode when you watch it. And it's a real shame when you find out what a dick Danny Kay was being. I always hate stories like that. I really do. It, it, it makes you wonder if, like, especially Danny Kay, who's been in that business for decades at that point. And it's like, surely he must know how the mechanism works. That the, <laughs> it's, it's a group effort. Okay. And if, if, if everyone else stinks, nobody's going to care about your performance. Well, and Ellison said it broke his heart because he, you know, was such a fan of Danny Kay, and this was the first time he'd ever worked with them. He said it broke his heart to see him be such a selfish prick like that on the set. Yeah, that, that's, and you have to admit that is kind of funny, actually, even coming from Ellison too. You know, given G- given that <laughs> some it's Harlan Ellison, yeah. But, <laughs> Sitting so, on the edge of forever, anyone? But, but so in, in that case, firing the director probably saved the episode. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh... Obviously, even the most talented auteur can destroy a project, so it's uh, it, it's definitely one of those things. It's it's too bad that the in this case, I think the Alan Smithy aspect, though calling it an Alan Smithy film, is is a shame. Though I mean, if if Ellison saved it, then he should have gotten the credit for it. He wasn't a member of the Directors Guild. He couldn't he couldn't take credit legally. Ah, well, because he was not a member of the Directors Guild at that point. <laughs> but Alan Smithy is you, <laughs> fun, you funny enough. But funny. yes. now next is a movie that i watched all the time as a kid i did not know this was a film that the director did not want to take credit for and having seen it as an adult now i understand why he did not want to take credit the 1985 medical sex comedy stitches oh gosh okay hey i was 10 at a when i was 10 that was a funny movie okay now i see that Man, this isn't even Porky's sequel quality here. This is bad, man. Yeah, that's. I I remember Stitches, man. I remember that like that period, and it's funny. I do believe I had friends that loved it. We're talking about fifteen-year-olds too, so. Yeah, and and so that's one of those ones that just. Uh... Well, uh, Morgan Stewart's coming home. I forgot about that one. John Cryer, yes. Uh, the John Cryer film, I actually, uh, again, uh, retroactively saw who directed that. And uh, I actually like the movie. I, I don't think it's great by any stretch of the imagination. It it really does look like a TV movie. I mean, and this was a theatrical film. And it, it looks like something you'd see made for TV. But I rather enjoyed it. And uh, that one surprised me. It was an Alan Smithy movie. Before we go too far into the rest of this, there's also the aspect of writers. When they feel a director has mucked up their project or their story to the point where they don't want to take credit anymore, going back to Harlan Ellison, whenever that happens to him, he won't let them use his name to promote it. He puts the, his pen name of Cordwainer Bird on his scripts, such as the, do you remember that old Western TV series, The Cimarron Strip? Oh, yeah, yeah. Ellison wrote an episode of that, and it was a pretty unique idea. I can remember being in the Old West. It was, what if Jack the Ripper was never stopped in England? The only reason all the ripping stopped in England 
is he came over to America and started ripping people in the Old West. I saw that one. Well, Ellison wrote that. And the way he wrote it, Ellison has very visual scripts. You know, he puts in what he, you know, where he thinks camera angles should be in things. So it's a, it's very easy to direct an Ellison script if you follow his script. He had the opening chase scene before the opening sequence of the Ripper chasing a prostitute down the strip, you know, shot in misdirection, in windows, in puddles of water, in an owl's eyes, things like that. The director threw all that away and did the Jason method. She's running, he's walking, and he somehow winds up in front of her. <laughs> and at th that was the point that Ellison said, this director's not even taking this seriously. He doesn't even care. He just wants to direct this and go home. So you've got that where a writer tries to take their name off of it. Or do you remember that horrible Lance Henriksen, Brian James movie, The Horror Show from 89? Oh, yes. And for, for our foreign listeners, you got that as House 3. Mm-hmm. But in America, it was called The Horror Show. Well, the writer, took the writer Alan Warner, he took his name off that after seeing the final cut. I can't say I blame him either on that one. And, and a lot of people might know that uh, Sam Raimi took his name off of a film. The 1992 The Nuthouse. He, he wrote that and produced it. And it was so bad after so many fights with the director and the studio, Raimi just said, you know what, do whatever you want. I'm, I'm, I've got, I'm done with this. Yeah, that, that one was in, uh, an, there was an article on it, a really big article in Film Threat magazine. That's actually, actually yes, I've re I read that same article in Film Threat, yes. <laughs> yeah, because the whole idea was based when, um, being a Michigander, uh, these, you know, we know these stories pretty well, but uh, uh, Ramey was part of a group called the, the Michigan Movie Mafia. And basically, it was that's just several guys that were making movies here in Michigan. And uh, they would make these short films like uh, The Wacky Waiter, The Nutty Nut, and things like that. And uh, Ramey always thought it would be a really cool thing if they just did a movie in that sort of Jerry Lewis Three Stooges vein. The, the, the way they put it in the article was they very much wanted to make a live-action Looney Tunes cartoon. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why... Did you ever see any of the Raimi shorts? Some of them. I, I saw, okay. like, the, uh, the the Raiders of the Trailer Park or something like that, and the, the Evil Dead kind of promo movie and things like that. Well, I'm talking, like, their comedies, the, the really short, silly, slapstick comedies. I don't think so. Okay, they're they're silly and they're very, very Three Stooges. Uh, I, I mean, they're very silly, awkward, goofy, you know, slapstickish type humor. Like I said, it's really a cross between like those Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin movie. Well, actually, when Jerry Lewis went uh, solo, it's more like a cross between those and Three Stooges films. And I know Raimi and Scott Spiegel really wanted to make a movie like that, but it it went out of control completely. Well, and even going back earlier in Raimi's career. There was Crime Wave, or again, for our foreign listeners, the XYZ Murders. Mm -hmm, the original title. Yeah. And, well, I know in Europe that was released on DVD under that title. So. Mm -hmm. But like that, the only reason Raimi didn't take his name off of it, according to Bruce Campbell's book, he didn't know he, that was even an option. <laughs> he, he was such a novice at this whole movie-making thing, he didn't even know you could take your name off of it. He thought, oh, I made it, i got to take credit for it. But he he hates that movie. Personally, I think parts of that movie really work. I really I, do. I like Crime Wave. I mean, if you can tolerate some of the, you know, the uneven moments, uh, there's there's actually some real sparks of ingenuity in that film. That's why I said parts of it work. 
I think yeah. parts work, parts really don't. And you can see, especially after reading Bruce Campbell's book, all the trouble that he talks about that was on the set. Yeah, well, he was supposed to be the lead right off the bat. That was the very first problem that arose. Yeah. He and, was the lead. And and, and then the, stu- the studio, I, I believe it was Avco Embassy, wasn't it? I, I believe you're correct. I, I think it was Avco Embassy. A- Avco Embassy said, no, we want a name actor. You know, Bruce was no name at that point no Evil Dead 2 or anything, and they wanted a name, so they brought in some soap opera star that, ironically enough, nobody has ever heard of today. I hadn't. I I hadn't then, and I haven't now. The guy basically retired a year or two after that. And this guy, according to Bruce Campbell's book, this guy didn't get it at all. And, And you can tell by his performance that it's almost like this one, the main actor, is in a different movie than the rest of the cast. And that's one of the biggest problems. The guy does not sell it at all. You can tell this role was written for Bruce Campbell. Well, when Louise Lasser is uh, is ahead of you on the curve, you know there's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> all right, going back to Alan, we've got a bunch of other movies no one's ever heard of. We've got both Co- the Code of Vengeance TV series and Dalton, Code of Vengeance 2, the TV movie. I've never even heard of the Code of Vengeance TV series. Uh, you got me off guard on that one. Ghost Fever. Uh. Oh gosh, yeah, I saw you, you that do one. know Shining that one. Hemsley. Actually, okay. Now that you mentioned that, I think I might have seen actually a trailer for that. Now that you mentioned Sherman yeah. Hemsley, then there's I Love New York from '87. There is Riviera, the TV movie, actually directed by John Frankenheimer. How bad do you got to screw up for John Frankenheimer to take his name off of off of your damn project? There wasn't enough chase scenes. Maybe not. Uh, we've got a bunch of other ones I've never heard of. And then the 1990 mega-budget disaster that actually bankrupted the studio, Solar Crisis. You remember this, this, this train wreck with Charlton Heston and Peter Boyle and Parker Lewis and all that? I, I remember when this actually hit. And I, but here's the funny part. I still haven't seen this movie. I st- it's, it's one of those films that sort of slipped through my... You know, by my radar, uh, but I, I as as to seeing it, but yes, I remember when this hit, and this was like this was on more movie magazines than I think Batman was. <laughs> yeah, because this was a this was not a low budget movie. This was a huge. You know, you got to remember, people. This is the 1990 direct to video market. So a 15 million dollar budget for a direct to video film was pretty big back then, and this completely bankrupted the studio that made it. And the fact that three different directors had to be brought in. They fired the first director halfway through production. Then they brought in another director. And then he finished the movie but had wanted no part to do in the editing. So they brought in another director to shoot some new scenes so he could edit his own version. And the movie is, Fred, borderline unwatchable. I I don't think I've ever finished it. I've gotten about an hour in and I just said, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, it, it, to be it, it's sort of the pre-water world, really. And uh, I, when you said fifteen million, I remembered it being different. I looked it up just now. According to IMDb, and of course it can be wrong, it says fifty-five million. Okay, fifty-five million. I, 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 I seem to remember it being smaller, but that makes it even a bigger bomb. Yeah, that's what I was going to say because when I remembered reading about this back then, because again, like you said, this was pretty big. This was big news, and it really was the water world of its of its time period. And this was about, in fact, I remember the tie-in because Batman 
had been such a big budget film, but of course was a hit. And uh, a lot of movie magazines were discussing where are Hollywood budgets going. You know, they they were going into the stratosphere. Isn't it kind of funny to think of fifty five million as a huge budget now? Well, yeah, that's what I mean. It's like I think people don't realize that you know, even to use the example again, when Waterworld hit, the idea of a hundred million dollars was unheard of. I remember was... when Star Trek: The Motion Picture came out at twenty six million. That was oh my god! They spent twenty six million dollars on a movie. Now it's yeah, like it... that's a TV pilot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny that uh, now we are dealing with uh, the budgets that are well. We finally have hit the two hundred thousand or two hundred million mark, and uh, it's insane because if you think Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark was around twenty million dollars to give you perspective, and so fifty five million dollars for a film that was that allegedly I haven't seen, so I can't speak for it. But you said it's it's no, unwatchable. it's as bad as you've heard. It is. Yeah, and I heard it was awful, so probably so, worse than Waterworld. So, yeah. And then, you know, you've got, again, in 1990, a movie, and I admit I haven't seen this one, Catch Fire, directed by Dennis Hopper. He had his name taken off of that. I don't know that film, but Dennis Hopper is a pretty decent director. And it was he still a pre- he was a pretty big name then, so for the studio, the producer, or whoever to kind of take the film from him, something had to have gone majorly wrong on Catch Fire. Yeah, I, I've seen this film, actually, and it wasn't called Catch Fire, though, when it was on VHS. I forget the name of it, but yeah, it wasn't horrible, but it is a, it is a bit of a mess, though. And this, uh, that actually would be his follow-up to Colors, wouldn't it? His, di- his directorial follow-up to Colors, I think. Well, if it's 1990. 90, because Colors was 88. Yeah, it would have to be, because, again, 90 was when I just moved to Florida. So, yeah, that would be right. So to come off of a major hit like Colors and then to your next film be an Alan Smithy, that that's a little hit to the ego. And then Backtrack. It was called Backtrack. Backtrack? Backtrack. Yeah. I'll have to look for that on VHS then. Mm-hmm. That's what it was released as. Now next we've got a film I've seen, and I can't imagine any this movie having ever been not an Alan Smithy film, because this film's a disaster. Shrimp on the Barbie with <laughs> Cheech Marin and Emma Sams. <laughs> I can't imagine that was ever okay. Let me put it this way: This is a movie that's made to be an Alan Smithy film, in, in the same way that I can't believe the Fat Boys movie, The Disorderlies, is not an Alan Smithy film. Oh, jeez. Yes, I just went there. Ah, uh, you're right, though. You're I I couldn't agree more. But yeah, I, I rented Shrimp on the Shrimp on the Barbie because I'm a big Cheech and Chong fan. Oh, the, even Cheech and Emma don't look like they want to be there. It looks like nobody wanted to make this movie. Yeah, it's this film is the very definition of awkward casting. Yeah, let's let's take a Mexican known for his drug humor and an American soap opera actress and put them in Australia. Um, humor? I'm looking at some of the other cast members and we've got two members of Road Warrior in this film. <laughs> Vern Wells and Bruce Spence, who's the gyro <laughs> captain. Yep. <laughs> this just doesn't that just sound like hit? <laughs> well, and then this this next one, I would really, really like to talk to director Art Leonardi to find out just what happened. What in the hell happens when you're working for Steven Spielberg Animation and you have your name taken off of a Tiny Toon Adventures episode? How bad does that Tiny Toons have to be? I, I still can't help but wonder if that was intentional or not, like for a joke. 
you, you really think? It's it, Look, it's quite possible. The episode is called, well, it's part of the Strange Tales of Weird Science. Yeah, it could be. So, so you actually think Artly and Artie just did that as, hey, this will be funny? I think so, because, again, you know, obviously, uh, and maybe we better backtrack just for this concept for a moment. The 1980s, we talk about that's when the Alan Smithy name really begins to explode. And that, if you recall, is when directors really first started getting noticed. You know, it became Steven Spielberg's This and... Uh, John, John Carpenter's that. Escape, huh? John Carpenter's This, etc. Yes, exactly. So the 1980s is when directors, people really... Now, of course, there were always people who knew who the directors were if you were a film lover. But I'm talking the mainstream audiences started to pay attention. Now, you're talking about Tiny Toon Adventures here. You know what I mean? Unless you're a diehard animation follower, nobody's looking at the who directed it. Okay, not unless it's some gargantuan hue. You know, Don Bluth did this one, but everybody they probably thought that was hilarious. That would be my bet. You know what? That that actually has credibility to it. So I, I will give you that one because that actually makes sense now that you bring that up. So you got me on that one. <laughs> well, it could be very wrong. He could have just watched it and said, "Boy, does this suck." Oh yeah, he could. Um, <laughs> now we're we're starting to run out of time, so I'm going to gloss over some of these, but. You've got mm-hmm. blood-sucking pharaohs in Pittsburgh. My mm-hmm. God, who would have ever thought that might have turned out to be a train wreck, huh? Yeah, with a title like that, you're just thinking, man, that's that's gonna that's gonna launch my career. Now, this next one, the Owl, I have seen. This was a this was actually a TV pilot that they just turned into a TV movie when it didn't get picked up. Brian Johnson of the X Files and Adrian Paul pre Highlander the TV series tried to launch their own Punisher-style character called the Owl. He only operates at night. <laughs> and, you know, he, he, he would help, you know... Uh, uh, do, you, do you remember the, the actress that played Colleen in the early episodes of Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman? I the, did not watch the show. Uh, my, my wife always did when we were dating. Uh, but she stars in this, obviously, pre-Dr. Quinn. It's it, it's literally the Punisher. A guy's family is killed, and he can't. He he never sleeps. He's Brian Johnson is his contact, and he you know is great with guns and knives, and it, it's it's terrible. It's just god awful. <laughs> Got an episode of Red Shoe Diaries, an episode of the Cosby Show in 1992, Call of the Wild TV movie. Now this next one, I've seen it, and it's not that bad of a movie especially by a name director, but I can see why they took their name off of it. Rick Rosenthal taking his name off of the Showtime TV movie, The Birds 2, Land's End. Yeah. I can I see why that. you don't really want to follow Hitchcock. That that was one of those films I remember before it came out, they were talking about, oh, it's more faithful to the book. Then it came out and they tried to bury it. I, I remember reading an interview with Rosenthal where he said this was a, this was an alimony movie. He needed the money, and it came along. So it's a movie he wouldn't have done if he hadn't have been in financial straits. Given so, so many interviews where that said, you begin to wonder if over 50% of Hollywood movies are Halloween films. It seems like it, because the, the way Bruce Campbell puts it, the reason he's in so much crap is he got divorced. He needed the money. Yeah, forget the studio moguls. It's the ex-wives that run Hollywood. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, and then we got some other stuff. Wild Justice Sleeps. Smoke and Lighten, Shim Sham Shimmy. These sound like Lifetime movies. Uh, and then we've got, again, 
I cannot believe anyone ever thought this would not be an Alan Smithy is the O.J. Simpson story TV movie from 95. Yeah, because we all thought that was just going to be amazing, right? And then, and then we've got one of the biggest ones. A big budget movie, theatrical release, really directed by Kevin Yeager, yeah. Hellraiser Bloodline. Now this one I really remember. I hate the film. I think it actually, I, I don't hate it for the reasons you would think. I don't hate it for the whole going into space because they actually make that part sort of credible. They're just opening the, the Lamarchant configuration on a space station. It's not really like Pinhead has gone, you know, snuck onto the shuttle or something. It actually doesn't really change the premise of the Hellraiser stuff, the whole in space thing. No, it, it wasn't. The idea behind that was actually supposed to be that the, the solution to closing the door to hell involved light. Which, of course, makes sense. Darkness versus light. Exactly. And the only way it could possibly be built... Th yeah, this wasn't supposed to be like Leprechaun in Space, Jason in Space. I mean, the concept was is that it would take it would take hundreds and hundreds of years from when the original Lament configuration was made to build the solution. And the only way it could be built was a giant configuration in space. It was the answer puzzle, if you will. But then, see, you got to remember, uh, uh, even though we, the, it had the Alan Smithy credit on it, when you saw it theatrically, a lot of people didn't even, you know, this is still in the era in the mid-90s when people didn't really look at the director credit unless it was a Carpenter or a Spielberg or, or a Romero or something. You know, nobody's going, oh, I need to see that new Kevin Yeager film. You can tell that there was massive re-editing just watching the theatrical cut. Because, like, remember there's all that stuff about his next-door neighbor knowing more than he should and then Pinhead kills him for no reason, and the neighbor makes a line like, you're going to regret this, and it's never brought up again? Well, it is in Jaeger's cut. The guy turned out to basically be an angel and came back and kicked Pinhead's ass in the work print. Mm -hmm. So, hey, there was actually payoff to that damn plot line in Jaeger's cut. Well, Jaeger had, and plus, this, it, it's not listed on AMDB. There was another director, and unfortunately, I don't remember his his name he Jaeger was fired he was actually fired on the movie yes and so he didn't get to even finish his part of it and a lot of what he shot was even refilmed so they the film's a hodgepodge of what Jaeger had filmed what this other director had filmed and of course what you would point out the butchery uh, wasn't uh, from Pinhead it was from the editor it was a very intriguing concept that Jaeger and Peter Atkins had worked on this was a very personal project for them because in their minds, they were sort of closing the book, if you will, or the limit configuration. And, and, and it was supposed to be an apology for how awful the third film was. Exactly. Too. That's th this was a really supposed to be the last Hellraiser. They honestly thought that this would be the finale that it would be, because that's why it starts off with who built the configuration. And it, it, then, it's both the beginning and the end. Yeah, and it, so it makes perfect sense in the fact that they brought an angel into the story. I mean, it, if you think about it, everything about it makes sense. And you said all the rest. I mean, it's just, it's a disaster. And people were booing it in the theater I saw it in. They were booing it. And and, and see, I've seen the work print. And I don't know if it's the same work print. The I think it's the Region 4 DVD. The German DVD actually has the work print as an extra, officially released by the studio. But I don't know if it's the same bootleg I got back in the early 2000s. The work print makes so much more sense, Fred. I mean, the I work it. print is a superior film in every way. 
And you just go, why didn't they just remaster that and finish the effects? It's a better movie. Uh, and then we got a couple, <laughs> we got a couple others like Exit from 96, Dilemma, River Made to Drown In, which that one really surprises me that it's James Marandino. I love SLC Punk. So I'm kind of curious to see River Made to Drown In because I think Marandino is a great director. And then, to check out. and then we've got what turned out to be the official death of the Alan Smithy credit, a film Fred can't stand, <laughs> I think is honestly a funny movie, and that is an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn. For those that don't know, is about a director whose real name is Alan Smithy, who directs a film called Trio, starring it's an action film starring Whoopi Goldberg, Sylvester Stallone, and Jackie Chan, all playing themselves. And when he finds it's the biggest piece of crap of all time, the studio takes it away from him. So he steals the movie and has two underground filmmakers, played by Dr. Dre and Coolio, who are the brothers' brothers, try and help him rescue his movie trio from the greedy studio, and the entire thing's done as if it's a documentary. What didn't you like, Fred? Just the jokes didn't work for you, or...? You know, that that's what it comes down to. I'm afraid that the jokes just failed. Uh, it's it's that kind of reference humor where just because you you reference something that's happened in the past doesn't necessarily make it funny, and I I just didn't laugh. I, I never laughed once in the whole film. See, I this this is where I I think the movie was genius. It's kind of like the TV series Action from 1999, which very much is a spin-off of this. They actually have a character the the character of Dodie the uh, agent is actually the producer of both the movie and the TV series Action and he plays the same character in both. So in reality, this is a pilot for the TV series Action. I, I tend to think that as much of this movie seems to be over-the-top comedy, a lot of the stupid crap that a lot of the studio executives say in the movie is probably closer to reality than it's not. That's oh, the part no I think is brilliant. Uh, Joe Esterhaus, that's his type of humor. So. Well, He's even got a great line where he's playing himself and he's interviewed and he goes, my God, it's worse than Showgirls. I, I like self-deprecating humor like that. I love so. I, I look. I'm not going to argue about you know what is or what isn't funny to an individual. Uh, I'm just when I saw the film, I expected something far more clever. That's all. There are obviously it, to me it'd be the difference between the way Blazing Saddles is a parody and the way these modern like scary movie, date movie, superhero. Movie, you know what I'm talking about? Those alleged parodies. Yes. yes. Um. Uh. Now we're getting. Some of oh forget it. it doesn't matter we're getting a whole button no, another batch of them but those it's the difference between those it's just it's to me burn Hollywood burn is more like the scary movie franchise it's just it's obvious re- referencing what's happened as opposed to being written with any genuine wit in my opinion and uh, see one of the reasons I think and I'm not saying the audience didn't get it but the critics were so against it was. The tone was set by Roger Ebert, who called it one of the most mean-spirited movies he'd seen in a decade. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so that makes it Because be-. he didn't complain that it's not funny. He complained that it's so mean you can't laugh at it. That That's not the same thing, Ebert. No, no, that, it's not. It's not. So he just hated the fact that it was mean, and by that, that made it a bad movie to him. I just think that if anybody's ever seen the movie The Big Picture with... Uh... Uh, Kevin Bacon, 
it's it has the somewhat it's got that same feel to it you know mocking that self-mocking deprecating humor to me that one's a little more clever you don't see this too often on a documentary but wad the life and times of john c holmes documentary from 99 is alan smithy and then you've got a couple more like that nero wolf and you've got some some episodes of various tv shows that are alan smithy but after the whole controversy over an alan smithy film because it was alan smithy film was really directed by arthur hiller and he actually didn't like when Joe Esterhaus, the writer and producer, recut the film, so he took his name off of it. So people thought it was a joke when it said, an Alan Smithy film is directed by Alan Smithy. So that's when Hollywood decided, the Directors Guild specifically decided, everybody knows Alan Smithy as a pseudonym. we we got to stop using this. So they officially retired that. And now you're not able to use a common pseudonym. If you try to take your name off of a film, you have to you have to make up a new name for each one. Like when Tony Kay tried to take his name off of American History X, he tried to credit it to Humpty Dumpty. And I do agree with Ebert on one thing. American History X is the best movie anyone ever tried to take their name off of. I will agree with that. I think that's an amazing movie. That, that movie's phenomenal. That's an amazing film. Now, the only thing I can say in Tony Kay's defense... I've seen his cut of the film, the bo- the leaked bootleg work print that I got in, in on my in my bootlegging days. You're talking about the brutal version, right? The really it, brutal it, one. It's almost a totally different film. Scenes are reordered. The music's totally different. There's most scenes have alternate takes used. It's it's got a lot of scenes that are not in the theatrical cut, but it's also missing a lot of scenes not in the theatrical cut. It's actually three minutes shorter than the theatrical version. And it's like it's the same movie, but it's a totally different movie, if that makes any sense. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, we we live in an age of, uh, you know, after Laserdisc and now DVD Blu-ray, I mean, we've seen alternate, for crying out loud, they're releasing multiple cuts of movies. You know, you, you can see Blade Runner, The Exorcist 4 or the beginning or whatever it was called, you know, both versions. And yeah, Blade Runner, you know, five different edits on the Blu-ray release alone. And this is a different era, uh, and they, I, I think Hollywood's going to have to become a little smarter. For instance, I wish, I really, really wish they'd retire the Wilhelm scream. Oh, I'm so sick of using Even when it's uh, done as a joke, you see that in so many cartoons that use it, and it's like, it's not funny anymore. It, yeah, it's too it's well not, known. It's been, yeah, it's, it's, the joke is not, in fact, I can't even see, I know it was an in-joke with the sound guys, because that's where it started, but it's come on guys it's it's it seems like they're just doing it to be more meta? for his audience than it is for a legitimate reason meta uh i'm not gonna go with meta I, i'm just gonna say that they, they're like we'll do whatever we want <laughs> like the thing with american history x is the reason he was not able to use humpty dumpty is he made the entire battle public uh, oh, the entire time he was taking out ads in Variety and complaining mm-hmm. about New Line. That's why he was not able to do it because he talked publicly about it, and you you can't. Un- that's a bell you can't unring. I I think the seeds for American History X's dissension were planted right off the bat by New Line. As great as I think Edward Norton was in that movie, Tony K did. That's not who he wanted. So right off the bat, Edward Norton knows the director does not want you on this set. The director knows I do not want you on this set. They fought the entire the entire yeah. shoot. 
And that right there is planting all the seeds for disaster. And the fact that Tony Kay had only directed shorts and TV commercials, Edward Norton is a huge rising star. Who do you think the studio is going to back? Yeah, it, that's it, like you said. It's there's nothing really to say about that. It's just a strange. Uh, maybe as a quick thought, um, I I agree with this a statement I once read in a, 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 an article that sometimes it's more amazing that there are as many good movies as there are in Hollywood, um, or in in movies in general because there's so many things that can go wrong. Oh yeah. Okay, and if you ever want to see, if anybody ever really wants to see. What we're talking about, go watch the documentary Hearts of Darkness about the making of Apocalypse Now. After seeing that, you, you can't believe that the movie ever came out at all. Exactly. You're you're just like, not only how did the movie come out, but how is this movie so goddamn brilliant? And you begin to realize that, I mean, seriously, so many movies are saved in editing. It's probably one of the reasons Hitchcock was so big on that. But, because uh, he knew, you know what I mean? He knew uh, instinctively. But yeah, I mean, History X is just one of those very bizarre examples. It it shouldn't work, and it does. When a film is taken away, it's not necessarily a bad studio thing. And sometimes it could be. Look at the Sam Raimi crime wave thing. He was just so ignorant about Hollywood, he didn't know he could. And like we pointed out, it's still not that bad of a movie. Or David Fincher. David Fincher was so insecure with it, this being his first film for Alien Three. That if he took his name off of it, because you can you watch any of that behind the scenes, he is not happy at all during the shooting of Alien Three, especially mm-hmm. by the fact that he's like the eighth director that they've hired and fu- and fired prior to him. <laughs> so he's not happy, and you can tell the entire time on Alien Three. And he probably thought, if I take my name off of my first movie, it'll also be my last movie. But I think now, if David Fincher could go back and take his name off of Alien Three. Since he does not talk about that in positive terms, I think he actually would. Right, right, yeah. Alien Three isn't just there's your now there's your classic example though of studio, too much studio interference. Oh, a perfect example is the face hugger right in the very beginning that gets Newt and Ripley. David Fincher kept telling Arthur Hiller and David Geiler, "We have to." you know, figure out a way to get this on board. They outright told him the audience won't care. They'll just accept that it's there. It just shows the contempt that the producers had for the audience of this movie. Yeah. Just do it. They don't, the audience won't, it's almost that Ed Wood, people look at the big picture, they're not into the small details. But the tombstone fell down, so? It's almost becoming prophetic because it seems more and more coming true. We are running out of time. Where can people find Frederick Fritz? Well, he's uh, coming back, actually. Uh, uh, my show's been off for a little while, but uh, movieapocalypse.com. And uh, episodes four, five, and six are all being done together. I'm, I'm actually going boom, boom, boom. So hopefully by uh, mid-November, you're going to start to see a lot of activity. What about Erase Rewind? Are you done with that? or are there more? No, Erase, Erase Rewind is going to be completely rebooted. Uh, you're going to have about two or three more episodes in the current format. And then I guess I'll make the announcement here. In January, it's going to be a completely, not a different show in the respects to what we talk about, but the structure will be completely different and we're going to be video. And you should fire that asshole Josh you used to have on every now and then. He was just irritating. and. Oh my gosh, the emails I have to deal with with that guy when he's ever he's on. Oh, it's irritating. So totally. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. 
1201beyond at gmail.com. Sanity is razor thin at geekjuicemedia.com. Where Fred, you can also find the movie apocalypse episodes at geekjuice. And mm-hmm. my, oh yeah, I'm sorry, sorry, Alex. Yes. And my <laughs> my, my my monthly column, the shadows of pop culture in Scene Magazine. So I'm going to put an Alan Smithy credit on this episode. Good night. <laughs> So much colder then My father was a soldier then And times were very hard When I was young When I was young I smoked my first cigarette at ten And for girls I had a bad yen And I had quite a ball When I was young When I